five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hey everyone, we're talking about space debris again this week. Unfortunately, this topic just keeps getting more urgent. For example, due to the recent Russian anti-satellite test that I'm sure you heard about. So my guest this week is Aras Fazy from Kehan Space. And Kehan is a startup that ingests data about space objects, including debris, and provides warnings about potential collisions and guidance for avoidance maneuvers to satellite operators. But I'll let Aras tell you all about that. Enjoy. And just as a reminder, if you enjoy this podcast in general, please leave us a review or rating on your favorite platform such as Apple Podcasts, so other people can find it. Thank you. Here are a couple of short messages from our sponsors, and then please enjoy my conversation with Aras. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Hey everybody, so today I'm thrilled to be here, joined by Aras Fazy, who is the CTO and co-founder of Kehan Space. Welcome, Aras. Thank you for having me. It's, it's an honor to be here. It's a pleasure. And, you know, we're talking about a very important topic, um, you know, as listeners will find out in a second. So why don't you give us the elevator pitch of Kehan and then we'll see what that is. Yeah. So every hour, billions of dollars worth of space assets are zooming by each other and uh, through a cloud of debris at 20,000 miles an hour. That's 10 times the speed of a bullet or, um, you know, if a, at that speed, a small fragment hits a satellite, not only will destroy that satellite, but the debris from that saddle, that that uh, accident will threaten other assets for generations to come. Um, we've we're launching order of magnitude more satellites these days compared to the history, and um, with the congestion that we've seen in orbit, it is becoming impossible basically to operate satellites manually. Our autonomy, the autonomy that we're building, are helping satellite operators. Um, run their operations safely uh, and get to orbit faster. Our autonomous satellite collision avoidance solution today is providing uh, service to more than 100 satellites, both in commercial and uh, defense industry. Uh, and we're expected to add a lot more this year to, uh, to, to our customer base. Great. So let's maybe take a step back and sort of just, you know, outline sort of the scale of the um, the issue, if you will, right? And so what I mean by that is, you know, um, you, you, as you said, there's more and more satellites in orbit right now. So sort of intuitively, it makes sense, of course, that the more satellites, you know, the, the higher the probability is of collisions. But sort of like, wh what is the probability now? Sort of like, whichever way you think is useful to explain that, it could be, you know, there's X satellites in orbit. And, you know, on an mm -hmm. average day, we may have, you know, X near misses. And, you know, maybe talk about a little bit of what the near actually means and yeah that kind of thing yeah let's take a step back and look at some numbers so since the dawn of space age we have launched so far somewhere around eleven thousand satellites as humanity all nations combined mm -hmm. and that's you know, since 1960s um so about 
you know, half of those, a little less than half of those are still operational. In the next decade, just in the next decade, we are expected to launch somewhere around 100,000 more satellites into orbit, right? So mm-hmm. um, with that congestion, um, a lot of trouble that, that we're facing. So, um, and, and most people believe that Earth orbit, you know, or space is unlimited, whereas Earth orbit is what we're really talking about. I'm particularly lower Earth orbit, where Let's say a couple hundred kilometers above Earth. That's usable for most missions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, in the, the, the a new study, a recent study came out of UT Austin that predicted that um, about ninety five percent of carrying capacity of Earth orbit is already taken up by space junk. So, mm-hmm. so imagine uh, having a very limited, finite, limited and finite resource and launching a lot more satellites into it. So, mm-hmm. so that's one aspect of. Of, of 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 the story, right? Uh, and the other one is that I mentioned earlier. You know that these speeds, you know, ten times speed of a bullet, it is a it is a very hyperkinetic event. And it and and if you have a, a catastrophic accident, it doesn't just stay there. It's not like a car accident that you have a you know collision and then you can basically uh, take the debris out and then other cars can continue driving. The debris in orbit stays there. You know, depending on which orbit they're in uh, and and where where the uh, where the debris is ejected. It can stay there for months, all the way through for hundreds of years, uh, mm-hmm. and and will continue to threaten uh, other assets. So, so these two combined uh, should tell us a story. One, we cannot afford to have any kind of collisions in orbit uh, because that is just can result in you know a chain reaction called Kester syndrome that you know debris from one collision can cause another one, and and it can render an entire orbital regime unusable for generations to come. And another thing that we need to think about is that anything that needs to go beyond lower Earth orbit has to go through lower Earth orbit first. Like when you're launching a missile or, or mission, uh, a rocket, it goes through the cloud of debris. So we, it is extremely important for us to make sure that the Earth orbit stays, uh, stays sustainable. Now, um, we, with these pieces of debris, it's estimated that there are about a million pieces of debris in Earth orbit, and we are only able to track them, track about 30,000 of them today. So again, we are reliably tracking about 30,000 pieces of debris and other objects called resident space objects. They can be operational satellites, defunct satellites, or debris, out of estimated about a million. So Imagine anything larger than a tennis ball. We can see it with our radars or, or telescopes from the ground. Anything this is going to ask you. This basically, I assume what we can see obviously depends on what's, what size it is, right? Exactly. So it's, it's about a tennis shape, ball? Yeah. Okay. It's about 10, 10 centimeters in diameter, generally speaking. We can see objects smaller than that, but but keeping custody of these, these objects, knowing, kind of keeping track of them, right? That is that is that is a different story. Algorithms do that, and those are very difficult. Mm-hmm. Now um, we have new and modern radars coming online. We have um, space fence that's uh, already up. Uh, hope once it's operational, it's estimated that we will have uh, we'll be tracking somewhere around hundred thousand of those those pieces of debris. But still, it's a fraction of what is estimated to be out there, right? And um, another thing that most people don't realize is that a lot of times we don't know where these objects are exactly because. Because it is just, there's what's called an uncertainty around where we think these objects are. Because when you track them from, from the ground, they're going at, at, at those you know, high speeds. Um, it, 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 they're, they're probably, you can imagine that there's, you can imagine in, in a banana shape uh, or, or a elongated um, a cone that, that we say, um, we believe that with a high certainty that this particular object is somewhere within this, within this bubble. Uh, and... When you have conjunctions or close approaches is when 
two bubbles overlap. And then it's a probabilistic event. So we usually say, okay, so we have a conjunction or we have a close approach uh, and the probability of collision is one in 10,000 and one in 100,000. Um, some people, when you say they see these numbers, like, oh, that, that's pretty low, right? One in 10,000 or one in 100,000. But, but we, we have tens of thousands of these events on a daily basis. So if you have tens of thousands of high probability events, it's likely that something will happen, right? It's all prob it's all probabilistic. Um, so what is safe from a from NASA perspective? So you know NASA believes that if there is a one in ten thousand chance of collision, we have to do something about it immediately. Uh, if it is some somewhere between one in ten thousand to one in hundred thousand, it's recommended to do something. It's below one one in hundred thousand. Uh, we can basically decide to you know um, just wait, wait and see, right? Um, and different companies, since there's no regulation or there's no you know, policy in place, a lot of companies kind of pick and choose their threshold for risk. Um, so some commercial operators have publicly announced that, for example, I believe Starlink said that one, one E minus five. So, you know, 100,000 is when they, they perform a maneuver. Okay. And I assume, correct me if I'm wrong, I would have imagined that people obviously prefer to avoid collisions. I mean, certainly for large, I mean, the larger the satellite, I guess, the more they want to avoid it because it gets more expensive. Um, what I'm trying to get at is so because you're saying it's probabilistic, and so I'm kind of imagining, you know, my 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 sort of like my statistics mind sort of like you know two overlapping Gaussian curves, you know, <laughs> probability distributions, and uh, and I'm kind of to think, okay, people would probably err on the side of making uh, false positive errors, as in like you know predict a collision even when there isn't one in the end, rather than the other way around, right? There's both. Um, but one thing that is very relevant is that a lot of times satellite operators perform maneuvers um, when the uncertainty is high just to be on the safe side. So they say, okay, yeah. so my probability of collision is, you know, one in one in 10,000 or on my missed distance, which is the closest that closest that that is predicted our these two objects will come uh, near each other is say it's um, you know, 150 meters, but the uncertainty is so high that I can't really rely on the solutions and I don't afford to have a, con a collision. So I'm going to perform a maneuver. Yeah. So a lot of times when we actually have good data, it helps us avoid maneuvers that are unnecessary because every, every unnecessary maneuver that we perform is additional fuel that we've used so shorter lifespan for the satellite, mm -hmm. and um, you have to put your satellite on safe mode in almost every case, and that that means you can't do business, right? Yes. So one of the one of the uh, values that that we're bringing to this is that we we try we help you only perform maneuvers that are necessary with obviously with with a safety with a safety net and avoid performing maneuvers that are not necessary. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of times there's not enough data for us to decide intelligently, okay, whether or not I want to do anything. Um, um, especially, so for example, when you have two satellites that are coplanars, uh, so their relative velocity is very low. So imagine that mm -hmm, basically mm -hmm. one is tracking the other. Mm -hmm. A lot of um, uh, legacy methods to calculate the probability of collision uh, doesn't work. So in a lot of cases, we don't have a good read on on how risky this this conjunction is. So with our some with some of our methods that we have, um, we analyze them different ways with a statistical model, with simulation uh, and analytical models, uh, and and we we can provide more information that helps satellite operators make a make a, um, uh, you know, uh, informed decision about what to do. Understood. So I'm still going to come back and still hypothesize that people are being overcautious. But again, it's a question back to you. So let's say everybody used the one in, there's a one in 10,000 seems to be a, a, a commonly used cutoff from what I understand. So if everybody uses that, it would still imply that sort of like in, 
basically, roughly speaking, every one in 10,000 times that there is such a warning that there would, an, there would be an actual collision, which I don't think is the case right now, or is it? No, it's not, luckily. Um, we don't have, you know, we don't have 10,000, you know, we have very lower number of, um, you know, um, conjunctions that are that are that that high uh, in, in terms of probability of collision on a daily basis. But if a day comes that, yes, we are having you know, 100,000, you know, 10,000 of these events a day, uh, and then satellite operators don't or can't perform avoidance maneuvers, that can be very catastrophic. And that's yeah. what we're worried about. Because yeah. there, there are constellations up there, there are many satellites up there that they cannot perform maneuvers, right? Either yeah. they don't have propulsion or they're p- large pieces of debris or small pieces of debris that, you know, they're, they're defunct. Uh, so second stages or defunct satellites. And that is the real problem. And that is what keeps us up up at night. If you continue to launch satellites that are not maneuverable into a very busy orbit, you can very well have, you know, high number of uh, conjunctions um, where neither of the parties can perform a maneuver. And that is catastrophic. And unfortunately, this is, this, you know, needs to be addressed. um, You know, I don't know if it's a policy perspective or, or it is, um, you know, just basically, you know, creating awareness. Um, but yeah, that is that that's a real problem that that we have to deal with. So, so actually, brings up an interesting side question. And so, I'm just going to assume that statistically, most um, conjunction warnings are between. Probably most conjunction warnings would be between two inactive uh, objects. But you can correct me if I'm wrong. And then followed by one inactive object with an active object, and that probably the conjunction warning between two active objects is probably more the. Um, the minority case. Um, but what I was going to ask is, so let's pretend we have a conjunction warning between two active objects. And because, as mm-hmm. you said, you know, if then it's obviously sufficient if one per, if one of these objects makes an avoidance maneuver, right? But whoever makes the avoidance maneuver is going to be the, the person who, you know, suffers the economic loss, so to say. So how is yeah. that decided in, in real life? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, again, um, I mean, the, the casual way of saying it is that everybody's winging it right now, honestly. So yeah, when you have two operational satellites, it's a and and so let's take, let, let me take a step step back. So conjunctions have been changing very rapidly um, in in different aspects. One of them is, as you said, now these days we're seeing a lot more operational and operational conjunctions, which we didn't see as much in back in the past, right? So the the difference is that when you have one operational versus one non-operational satellite or, or, or a non-maneuverable object, it is easy. Like it's decision, the decision is made. The one that can maneuver, if there's a need for maneuver, will perform maneuver, right? Um, and, and they don't need to coordinate with anyone. They just know that, you know, that this is the trajectory of, of the uh, secondary or the second object. And I, you know, I know it for with this certainty and I'm going to do this, uh, perform this maneuver. So when you have two operational satellites, multiple things um, happen that make it even more complicated. One that you mentioned. Okay, so if you have a conjunction between two assets, who moves? Um, you know, how does this negotiation happen? Are there any rule, rules of the road? Um, or what if one of the one of the two parties doesn't even respond, right? Which all of these are in fact real problems today. Now, imagine a scenario when you have two operational satellites, they don't talk to each other, they can't talk to each other, or they, you know, they can't get a hold of each other. And then they both both decide to perform a maneuver, and then that maneuver that is not coordinated between them actually increases the probability of collision. And this could, and we believe that it is happening quite often these days. Now, what have what operators have done is has been pretty limited. So today, um, there, there are very few bilateral kind of um, or, 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 or mutual kind of agreements between certain satellite operators. So for example, SpaceX announced that they have an agreement, they've signed an agreement with NASA 
that they have said, okay, every time a, a, a Starlink satellite has a conjunction with a NASA asset, um, uh, Starlink will perform a new work. So NASA doesn't have to worry about it, right? So that's, that's at least they know that, and, and Starlink does it. But we have hundreds uh, of satellite operators today, soon reaching thousands. So we can't really expect every two satellite operator that are flying in each other's vicinity to have to put together these agreements, right? And in a lot of times, it is actually very difficult for operators to get a hold of each other. So imagine you are a satellite operator in the U.S., you have a conjunction with, uh, with, a, with, a, with an operator out of, let's say, just for sake of argument, Europe, they're, they're a new company, and um, you know that there's time difference, and then the, it's the same day event, and then one of the companies can't reach, reach the other one. So they just have to basically make, make you know, the, the best guess and perform a maneuver. So with more congestion in space, um, we can't really run space operations when human is in the loop because we have we have shorter lead times for these conjunctions. It's you know back in the day we used to have five to seven days generally heads up before before an event. But just in recent months, anecdotally speaking, we have seen for our clients a large number of same day or like you know you know maybe 20, 48 hour kind of heads up because um, there's a multiple factors that I can get into if the, if you're interested. Um, but but yeah, so we have more. Operational satellite and operational satellite conjunctions, and more last-minute conjunctions. And and when human is in the loop, they have to try to figure out who the other party is, get their input, try to negotiate, come back, plan a maneuver, screen it, make sure that 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 maneuver is not going to cause another cause another accident, and perform it. And by the time they get there, it is happening today. A lot of times, it's too late because by the time you've decided what to do, you only have a small window of opportunity when you have ground coverage to communicate with your satellite. So that is why, um, you know, we recently announced our new product called Pathfinder, which is a autonomous uh, coordinated satellite collision avoidance system. We believe that unless this is done in a machine to machine level between operators, and through through um, you know autonomous systems, um, we can we can't really have a safe operating environment in, in orbit in the next couple of years. Right. But does then does that then assume that your system is deployed on sort of, let's say, both satellites for that to work correctly? Yes. So yes and no. So um, ideally, we would like both parties to use um, our solution, but that would make things a lot easier. But even if one of the operators is using our solution, we are uh, working on providing a way for non-customer operators to also participate in our platform um, because we we are providing enough value for both parties um, to be incentivized to um, to basically play in the system. Um, so even if you don't want to pay for the system, if you don't want to use our maneuvers, at least um, provide a way for two operators to coordinate. Um, with either with data sharing or setting um, agreements amongst each other or setting some rules between themselves um, to at least passively provide information and feedback that can help reduce the risk of collisions. And so the idea, if I understand correctly, would be that at some point in time, this would basically be fully automated. You wouldn't need any like humans in the in the loop to sort of um, decide whether there is a maneuver or not, and then to execute the maneuver. That's correct. Okay. And so how far away are we from that right now? From a technology perspective, we're not that far out. We are right now, today, um, our autonomous solution is operational of for an operational satellites satellite versus uh, a non-maneuverable object. So basically, what it means is that we assume that second uh, our, our secondary, if the, our secondary is not going to move or perform maneuver, our uh, autonomous solution today generates 
uh, feasible solutions, screens them, and provides the, provides the, uh, the maneuver plan through a command file that can be uploaded to satellite today. The only piece that is intentionally held is, ma is manual, is, is the part where the customer downloads the command file and uploads it to satellite. And that's intentional, right? Because just, you know, that we believe that that is our way of kind of putting human on the loop, not in the loop. Um, so we have that already built, and that's that's operational today. Uh, now, the, the coordinated autonomy, our target is to launch that uh, in Q3 of this year, the latest. Uh, and with that, we will continue to add that, uh, have that that final approval by the operator. Um, but but I mean, once the system is uh, up and running, uh, we believe that um, once the once the um, ecosystem allows us, we can switch, uh, basically turn on the autonomy uh, and don't rely on humans. Um, or, or, or we only we or only just kind of limit the human inter intervention to when you want to kind of cancel a maneuver or override a, a system decision. And so let's just take a little bit deeper for one moment and sort of, um, let's call it unpredictable event. There's, I guess, you know, on the one end of the spectrum, we, we have objects which are well-tracked and then it's basically, it's basically astrodynamics. You know, you kind of know very far in advance when they, you know, when there would be a con possible conjunction, right? And is that sort of the main case or is there also like a lot of, you know, cases where you didn't really know there was an object or maybe you just got it wrong and then it gets picked up by a sensor and yeah, some some more unpredictable cases. Yeah. So, so we have, we, are, we have more and more of the latter type these days. So what I mean by that is that, um, uh, first of all, um, there are collisions or, or, uh, you know, incidents that happen that we never detected them prior to them happening because, you know, the object's too small or it's not well-tracked. Uh, well, a couple of months ago when uh, a small piece of debris uh, pierced through the Canadian robotic arm of uh, ISS, right? Yeah. Or there was a Chinese satellite that stopped working and then later it was, uh, you know, we realized that there was a breakup. So, it, you know, there was an untracked or or, loop or, or poorly tracked um, piece of debris had, had had a collision with that satellite. Um, so uh, when, uh, so when, uh, so re more recently, we're having more and more of the uh, kind of late notices or last minute notifications for, for a number of reasons. One is that now we are, um, some, now we have started tracking smaller objects with better radars, but but it, maybe the tracking is not that good yet. So we see the, we see the, uh, we see the objects, but we can't keep custody of them for too long or the uncertainties are high. So that, that could result in um, kind of last minute detection of the conjunctions. The other one is that now that we have a lot of satellites in orbit that perform maneuvers, um, that reduces the predictability of the trajectory when you are a third party just mm. monitoring you, right? So imagine I, I, I track you uh, over the pass, over a radar pass today. And then between this pass and the next pass, which is in a couple hours, you perform a maneuver. And then you come in and I track you again, you haven't told me that you performed a maneuver and uh, the algorithms associate those objects, but they like, but they say, okay, so I thought you were going, you were going to be here, but you're here now. So now that affects the kind of the, the precision of, of tracking. Now, one of the really important things is, is for, for, for ground state for for ground systems that are tracking these objects to know about the the upcoming maneuvers and also maneuvers that have been performed in the past. So this is sorry to interrupt. This is kind of interesting to me. I didn't because I didn't realize that. I sort of for some reason thought that we we're moving towards a. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I assume with aircraft, sort of because they have transponders and they're in constant contact with air traffic control, sort of like air traffic control 
presumably knows where they are at any given point in time, right? Yeah, so if you have a GPS on board, and if you're analyzing your GPS data and you're using that for orbit determination, you as an operator know very precisely where you are. Now, more and more satellites in LEO have, have GPS these days. It's, it's, you know, it's small and, 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 uh, and, it, and it's gotten to a place where it's very affordable to have it or very feasible mm -hmm. to have it on basically CubeSats. But the, the problem is that you as an operator know where you are. But does, you know, US Space Command know where you are? Do you communicate that with them? Because all as a third party, they use their tracker, then their sensors to track you. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of these operators are not necessarily communicating these maneuvers with the, you know, with the broader community. But as I say, do, do you think there should be like a situation or some sort of setup where everybody should just like, you know, um, at all times basically provide a telemetry to like some central pool that anybody can access? I mean. Do you think that should happen? Do you think that will happen? Or uh, we we definitely hope to uh, make that a reality uh, as a commercial solution, and that's something that we're working through. But obviously, there are a lot of considerations, right? So a lot of you know some satellite operators may not feel comfortable um, sharing um, their their plans, and and for, for various reasons, commercial or defense or military, you know, of course, yeah. military reasons, right? Um, that is one, and the other one is that we are talking. It's not you know with with, with air air traffic control. We have, uh, you know, we have territories. Like if you're flying over U.S. airspace, U.S. has uh, authority over the airspace. But in space, um, there's no authority. Like, it, you know, it's, it's, it's global. It's an international um, um, operating field. And not everybody is on the same page around how, how, how we're going to work with each other, right? So we have, um, so it, it is a contested uh, and congested environment. So it's very hard to, it's very difficult to set up rules that, that, that are agreed upon. Um, um, and and unfortunately, we're behind on that, right? So right now we are, we're doing a lot of work on our side, working with international community, with, um, you know, with media, with, with the policymakers to try to raise awareness. But we have to, uh, you know, as, as as humanity, we have to get together and and set up some basic rules. That's hey, look, if you know, um, yeah, at least in cases when when there is when there when there's danger for other people, other you know operators' assets, we have to do data sharing. Hopefully, we'll get there at some point, and and we we should get there. You know, if you want to be able to uh, have a sustainable Earth environment, but we're not there today, not at all. Yeah, and I just realized you made a good point, sort of, okay, air traffic, you, you have sort of like, okay, in which airspace are you? Maybe the better comparison I should have used is sort of like, you know, the, the oceans and shipping, right, where you have, um, and, and many listeners may not even know that, you have these, what's called AIS transponders, right, so automatic identification mm -hmm. systems where ships basically are supposed to identify themselves and communicate to each other where they are. I think partly actually to avoid collisions. Yeah, that's a, it's a very good example. Um, there are a couple of uh, similarities, but big differences. Um, so, uh, you know, as we know, a lot of times ships have the option to turn it off, and, and they, they they sure do that just to you know yeah. uh, kind of stay under the radar. Yeah. Um, and also, um, so so that that's happening, and and, and you know, uh, you can imagine that you know, all these satellites are flying with their transponders off now. Uh, you know, that, that's that's a comparison with the space. Another one is that the with the ocean, you know, uh, uh, with 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 ships, we're talking about very low velocity kind of events, right? So. Yeah. Um, you know, even if it, you know, obviously not at night, but like during the day, you know, uh, simply you can, you can see another ship coming sure. at you. And plus you uh, don't have space, debris from old ships flying around. Right, exactly. All you know, right. But, but in, in orbit, the, the, the object that you're, you're, you're going to have a conjunction with, uh, you know, in about five hours, it may be th three rotations away behind Earth right now. Right. So 
because you know smaller object and lower earth orbit you know you're going around you know rough, rough rule of thumb but the you know, 90 minutes so so the, the object is 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 you know three ro- uh, th- uh, you know three rotations on the other side of the earth so there, there's some differences, but yeah, I think that's a, that's a good example that, you know, unless we, uh, you know, if you, if you had a very, you know, fast ships in a very congested area, and then if you had, you know, uh, sh- vessels that turned off their, their transponders, it would have been very dangerous. And that's, that's, that's where we are right now in space. Okay. You've mentioned sort of radar as an example of, you know, one track methodology a few times. And maybe I thought maybe we should spend a couple of minutes, if you can just walk through what are the main ways we're actually tracking these objects, because mm-hmm. you guys... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys are not actually um, collecting the data or producing the data yourselves, right? You're ingesting data and basically uh, providing insights, right? But so who who is generating the data and like what are sort of the key technologies we use at the moment and in the near future? Yeah, that's a great question. So yes, we are not a, we're not a data provider. We don't have, we don't have our sensors. Um, so there are multiple ways. There are different ways of tracking these objects as a third party. Um, the the most common one, especially for lower Earth orbit, um, radar is um, is 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 the most commonly used technology. So. Um, and um, the the largest network of ground radars belongs to U.S. government. It's called SSN, Space Surveillance Network. Mm-hmm. It was originally developed to protect uh, against uh, ballistic missiles, to detect and, and protect against those. But as byproduct of that, uh, we were able to see um, satellites and other pieces of debris in orbit. So they basically kind of fell on their lap, and now they're they have the largest catalog of, mm-hmm. of tracked objects in orbit. Um, but but for uh, objects that are in in higher altitudes, um, we generally use um, you know telescopes um, to to track objects, as well as there is passive RF. So you know based based on if you know that you know there's a certain asset that is. Um, uh, you know, transmitting at a certain frequency, you can use uh, ground, um, you know, ground uh, stations to to use uh, and use passive RF to, to kind of find their, uh, or, or track them. Um, there's ra- there, there's ranging um, with ground stations as well as with lasers. So there are different ways, um, but generally, ma- vast majority of the objects today are tracked by ground radar. So these are you know multiple radars that that are uh, placed strategically around the globe. Um, there are commercial solutions like Leo Lab that do that. Uh, Leo Labs that do that, and um, but the largest catalog today belongs to uh, Space Surveys Network. So it seems like it's basically mostly, if not all, from the ground right now. Do you do you see us doing this from space in the future, and is there a benefit to that? Yes, absolutely. Um, so by the way, just uh, I, I forgot to mention um, the uh, European Space Agency's EU SSD, which is also a very robust set of uh, radars and grand, and and sense grand sensors that that track these objects mm-hmm. um so um yes so there one of the reasons that we are only tracking you know less uh, just only a fraction of of estimated piece of debris in orbit is that um, a lot of these objects are too small and they just it's very difficult to find them with radars i mean how much energy can you put behind a radar before causing trouble for other assets right sure. so there, there are limitations there and um a, a new um a, a new kind of wave of uh of, of technologies that are coming out with um um with with satellites that are doing rpo or or they have you know really good sensors on board um we are uh, actually a lot of companies we, we we actually do have a contract with a partner with u.s government we, we were awarded a uh, spir contract from u.s air force to to do feasibility study on this mm-hmm. is that we use these um in orbit asset sensors to try to um do one of the two so either um detect uh and track objects that are not tracked today that's one 
one thing. Uh, and the second one is that um, to better track some objects that we are tracking today, but 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 they're very they're not very well tracked. So the uncertainty is high for for them. Um, so imagine you know you have a um, large piece of secondary that because of orbit or for for whatever reason it's not very well tracked. Um, we can use these in orbit assets to um, to to kind of um, uh, do a better job of tracking it. Now there are. There are technologies that rely on um, like radar or lidar uh, or um, cameras um, um, to 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 see and track these objects. Um, I don't believe there is a uh, there's a solution that's working today um, out there, but but mm -hmm. we're, we know of a, a handful of companies that are working toward that, and we are we are partnering yeah. with one of these companies today. Excellent. Okay, so there's a lot of exciting things on on the horizon. So where are you guys right now? So you're obviously your product is live, right? And so you are sort of in the scaling up phase, um, finding more customers. Is is that where you are? Yes, we we launched our commercial solution earlier this year, um, uh, and we provide service, as I mentioned, to multiple uh, commercial and government customers. Uh, we have over 100 satellites that we provide service to, mm -hmm. um, and. You know, uh, we recently announced our new product, which we call Pathfinder, is the coordinated yep. autonomous collision avoidance. Next year, um, our focus is going to be developing and bringing that product to market while we're expanding our current solution um, to to more satellite operators globally. Uh, on the other on the other side, we're working very closely with um, governments uh, around the world um, to to develop more um, advanced technologies to improve. The, the tra tracking quality um, for, um, for for orbital debris. Um, as an example, um, we have a, a contract with U.S. government to improve the accuracy of um, what's called HASDA model um, that that is used as high accuracy drag model that is used to better estimate. Um, the the, um, the uh, space weather data mm -hmm. um, to improve the tracking of of the um, debris and and also assets that are. Uh, in lower Earth orbit. So yeah, so um, it's, it's it's a very exciting year ahead of us with the increased number of launch providers, with the you know increased number of launches and more satellites. Um, so yeah, so we're, we're you know we're really excited, very excited to bring to do as much as we can to make space flight safer. Terrific. And your customers, I assume, are basically probably paying on some sort of let's call it subscription basis, right, per per satellite or something like that. Yes. So we are a software solution, software only solution, and uh, we're providing our solution uh, as a as software as uh, under software as a service. Um, uh, method uh, and yeah, so we we charge by satellite by month. And depending on what tier of service our customers are uh, opting into and the constellation size and a couple other factors, um, the price varies. Understood. Okay, I only have three final questions for you. So one is, um, you know, so you, you seem to be in a very exciting moment of growth. Sort of uh, first question is, are you, are you hiring at the moment? We just finished, uh, we, we, we just doubled our, the size of our engineering team. We are always hiring. Um, we are looking for talent in astrodynamics. We're looking for uh, amazing um data scientists and and software engineers um but yeah we we have uh, we we post our uh, openings on our website khan.space um and yeah we're always hiring so Perfect. if you're excited put, about about the side on the, the notes yeah. as well yeah <laughs> and then i was wondering if if you weren't doing khan is there something else you find very fascinating in space that you would be doing as an entrepreneur yeah that's an interesting question i mean we're so focused on this that um that we haven't really um, that 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 I haven't really thought about any uh, you know 
vastly other, vastly different uh, uh, topic. But honestly, I think um, I, I think there is a there's a lot of room for. Um, all right, let me take a step back. So, um, just like Gold Rush, um, you know, it was there was, was a new industry, right? There was a, there was a new uh, initiative, and and we had a lot of call it entrepreneurs and and um, and, and people who wanted to 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 take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is kind of a sort of gold rush moment, a second wave of you know space. Uh, I guess um, you know, it's a very exciting phase for space. But a lot of uh, a lot of these companies that want to get to space have to do a lot uh, of of the work um, internally. One analogy I like to use is that imagine you're a car company, and you have to build everything almost in house from from wheels to um you know from wheels to the engine um i think one of the things that i would i i i would do if i was not doing khan is to kind of look for opportunities where you can um you can productionize uh, common technologies that are used among other uh, vast uh, you know uh, majority of the operators to increase the pace of uh, uh, you know, development and pace of innovation in, in space. And, and I keep going back to data. And I think data is a big bottleneck. Um, if you can bring more data, provide more data and provide more tools um, as out-of-the-box out of solutions, I think we're just helping space economy grow much faster. Scale faster, I, I, yeah. I agree. Okay, and then the, the final question as always is about sci-fi and you know any sort of favorite science fiction i guess the one thing with space debris that comes to mind is uh, is, is gravity but i mean beyond that sort of in general about science fiction um any favorites yeah i've actually i've um now that you're asking um it comes to mind i've i've i find myself watching uh and, and reading a lot about um you know uh um interplanetary trips and uh colonization of other um mm-hmm. other um um planets and that's that's what i've been reading because even though it's science fiction it's science fiction today uh, we have a clear path to get there so um yeah i that that is one of my favorite uh, topics um it, it it helps i feel like subconsciously it helps me think how the future will look like and kind of prepare for it but yeah uh multiplanetary uh colonization is, is what I've been reading and watching lately. That's terrific. And of course, a good thing of sort of the, in the interplanetary side, at least for the moment, we haven't sort of clocked that up with, with debris yet. <laughs> Unfortunately, we'll be able to sort of leave the Earth, go through the debris and actually get to the interplanetary trajectory. Yes, yes. And one interesting thing that um, I think most people probably miss it is that, um, you know, there are a couple of satellites um, that are flying around Mars. Um uh, about a month ago, um, two of the satellites actually had a conjunction, and one of them really? had to perform a and yes, one of them had to perform a maneuver. And I believe it was the um, I can't remember the name. Uh, I think it was uh, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter uh, versus um, the the satellite that was launched by India recently. I believe they had a conjunction, and they had to one. And they, I believe that the satellite that belonged to India had to perform a maneuver. But yeah, we are. Uh, you know, uh, we've already started thinking about this lunar. Uh, yeah, I, I was gonna say I hope we're not gonna clog up the moon. And I know, yeah, <laughs> I know there are the conversations already how we're going to track uh, you know, objects and debris in this lunar environment. So yeah, we'll, we'll get there if you're not careful. And you guys will be there. So again, Aras, thank you very much for the conversation. As I said at the beginning, I think what the work you guys are doing is, is is really important to you know keep our continued access to space. And so you know, good luck with everything and your continued growth of the company. And you know, it'll be interesting to kind of do this again in a couple of years or so and see exactly how clocked up the the space has become. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. to do that. Uh, hopefully, we'll be in a much better uh, place than we are today. 
Uh, yeah, this was a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.